This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics. Thank you so much for being with us here this evening. We usually don't do a Monday show, but tonight, tonight is a special occasion, of course, because we are on election eve. So, everybody, look, I, I'm a nerd about this stuff. I know. I get it. It's it's just who I am, and I'm aware of that. So, uh, I geek out about this. I mean, this is part of what makes our country great, is that we come together and we have a discussion, and after all the fighting and knocking of heads and everything else, I mean, we, we take it to the mat and we fight hard for our ideas, and then it all comes out in the form of people deciding who the representatives will be. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, just like anything else that involves human beings, that comes too far. But here on Tactics, we believe that speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. All three of those are incredibly important right now, especially, especially for this election, and I don't think I have to explain why. I mean, we all know it. We all know that we need to be at a place in this country, and unfortunately, it feels like we're not here in a lot of ways. We're not at the place where we need to be to where speech isn't violence, and, and what you say, I can disagree with you, I can dislike what you say, but I don't want to physically hurt you. That's part of what liberty is. That's why freedom of speech is one of the very first rights afforded to us, one of the five that is given in the First Amendment, or at the very least stated to be protected, because, of course, all rights do come originally from God. And then, especially when it comes to tolerance being love, I mean, it's great that we can tolerate one another and that we don't throw punches and that we don't attack one another just because we disagree with their ideas. But remember that love is more important than tolerance, that love comes from a deeper place. Tolerance is merely just not attacking a person because you happen to disagree with them. Love is actually having concern and compassion for that person and wanting what is best for them even when they do disagree with you no matter what. That's a much more difficult thing to do than just merely tolerating a person. A Christian is never called to tolerance. We are constantly called to love. And that is a big difference. And then finally, disagreement isn't hate. And disagreement isn't hate. I do not have to hate you. I do not want horrible things to happen to you. I don't want your family to be hurt. I don't want your life to be miserable. I don't hate people just because they disagree with me. I disagree with people that disagree with me, and that's as far as it goes. Now, I'll attack your ideas, but I'm not going to attack you as a person. I don't want horrible things to happen to you. I don't want to cancel you. I don't want you to not have a job anymore because you disagree with me. Disagreeing just means we disagree. We don't have to take it to the level of hate, and that's as far as I want to go with that. But I think that that's a good starting point before we dive into our sample ballots. And I have the sample ballot right here. This is one from Elmore County because that is, of course, my place of origin here. That's, that's the place where I live in Alabama. And so because of that, I do have a sample ballot from Elmore County. But we're going to focus on the things that are universal for the state of Alabama. And I do want you to keep those principles, those morals, those sort of baseline things in your mind that speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate as we go through this, because when it's all said and done, those things are going to be more important even than who wins the election in these cases. So let us always remember those. So we're just going to go line by line. We do this every single year right before an election. 
we just go down line by line, look at the individual things here on the ballot, and I'm going to tell you what I think about them. And, of course, the very first one at the very top is straight party voting. That's always the first one. You have the option in the state of Alabama to just click Republican, and then automatically every single vote that you have is for every candidate that is Republican. And the same is true for Democrat. I think that this is something that I don't have a problem with it being on the ballot per se. Like I don't have any moral aversion to it, but I do have a moral aversion to actually marking the ballot that way. Now, I probably will wind up voting exclusively for Republicans. But you being a Republican doesn't mean you automatically get my vote. There may be some races that I abstain from. There may be some races that I do a write-in for. That is going to happen. I, I don't see uh, on this particular ballot any Democrats that I would vote for. But I don't like the idea of just because you happen to belong to one party, I'm just going to straight ticket this. And I've, I've seen so many people on social media advocating for this. Uh, I actually had a guy that said, well, I just hope that you use your influence and your followers and you explain to them that they need to vote straight Republican ticket. I'm like, well, I never tell anybody how to vote. And I don't. That's been my mantra since the very beginning, since I started doing this about five years ago. I never tell anyone how to vote. I have yet to ever, on the radio, or my podcast, either, either venue, I've never told anyone how to vote. I tell you how I'm going to vote, I tell you what I think about it, and I tell you what I think is going to happen. I give you my prediction of how this is going to go. But I do not tell people how to vote. I give you information, I give you my opinion, and you do with that what you will. That's how this works. Now, I get that some people don't like that. I actually had one guy, that the same guy that was saying that he I needed to use my influence to tell my followers, which is hilarious. I don't have followers. I mean, I have followers on Twitter, but that's just because that's what they're called. Uh, I have people that listen to me. I have an audience. That's it. And sometimes they agree with me. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they vote the way I do. Sometimes they don't. And that's fine. It's not my job to convince you to vote for somebody. I'm not the campaign manager for the Republican Party. I'm a political commentator, so I give you comments on politics, and you decide what you're going to do with them. So, without further ado, let's get into the actual races. I don't like that straight line ticket. I, I don't like just mindlessly going, yep, everybody that has an R behind their name or everybody that has a D behind their name, they get my vote. I think that that is a lazy, unthinking person that does that. And you should not be voting if you are a lazy, unthinking person. I think you should inform yourself on the issues and then vote. Not the other way around. You shouldn't be voting because you like one party or like one candidate or the other. Actually study, do some research. If you're going to do this, do it accurately. A lot of people say, well, everybody should vote. No, they shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. If you're going to take it seriously, if you're actually going to inform yourself on the issues, even if you come to a different conclusion than me, that's fine, but be informed. Don't just vote for people that you like or, or people that you want. Actually study the issues and know what you are voting for. Which brings us to the first election on this ballot, the president. And this is a tough one for me. For those of you who don't know, just giving you a little bit of background, I did not vote for President Trump in 2016. You may be an, a newcomer to the show, you don't remember when I was covering that, uh, that particular election, but it became a very contentious thing between me and a lot of my listeners because I live in the most Trump state in the entire country. He has the highest approval rating in Alabama of literally any state in the nation. Only West Virginia 
has occasionally topped us on that. They, usually both Alabama and West Virginia's approval rating of Trump is floating somewhere between 61 and 63. And so sometimes we'll switch back and forth, but usually it's Alabama that's in first place on that. And so with that being said, as you can imagine, it was very unpopular for me voting third party and telling people that I did not think it was a good idea to vote for President Trump in 2016. But here's the thing, and I, I, I said this when it started. President Trump now has four years to convince me to vote for him. He has a clean slate, and from this point on is what I'm going to be judging. Because the guy didn't have a political career before then, which I get is bizarre, but he went from not being a politician to being the President of the United States. It's freaky. No one's ever done it before he did. But he essentially only has, at least in being in office and having a voting record, I know the president doesn't vote, he just vetoes and, and enacts policies, but as far as his voting record, his record goes, he has one that we can actually judge now. We were kind of, he was a little bit of an enigma before because he had been on every side of every political issue. And so now we actually have some hard evidence to determine whether he's doing a good job or not. And so that's something that's very differently. But I said on the day that he got elected, and by the way, this is the same courtesy that I afforded to President Barack Obama. Now, he ruined it pretty quickly <laughs> because he did a whole bunch of stuff that he shouldn't have been doing and completely ignored the Constitution. But this is the same courtesy I tried to extend to him. But President Trump, I thought, got a clean slate. And I was going to judge based on what he did between 2016 and 2020. This was a big one for me. Morality. Because I do think that morality matters. I know that a lot of people have tried to make the case that it doesn't... A lot of unthinking people will make the stupid and lazy argument, Well, I'm not voting for a priest, I'm voting for a president. Okay. But you're basically just saying that morality doesn't matter. That's your argument if that's the case. And... It, Democrats kind of made this back when Bill Clinton, because there was a time, I know that this seems like ancient history, that back before the Monica Lewinsky, uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, basically everybody agreed that morality was an important part of character, and your character should be a consideration in whether or not you should be in an elected office. Then what, what happened with the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Democrats basically said, nope, character doesn't matter anymore. We just don't care about it. We like Bill Clinton. We want him to stay in office. We don't want him to be impeached. Ergo, character, just not a factor anymore. You should never consider that in your political posturing. Now, 10 minutes before that happened, they thought character was really important. And then they just threw that out the window. And then in 2016, when President Trump came in, who had lived, let's be honest, a hedonistic lifestyle up until the ripe old age of his 70s, People were like, yeah, morality really doesn't matter. We really like Trump. We like what he's saying. And so screw morality. I'm not saying that every single person that voted for Trump believed that. But I heard a lot of people make that exact argument. I don't think that they made it in those exact words. But I, I, a lot of Republicans, a lot of lifelong Republicans, I heard making that argument that morality is just a non-factor. We don't care about it anymore. But here's the deal. Since he's been in office, he's done some immoral things. He's, for example, crass, overly aggressive, that kind of thing. But as far as sleeping around on his wife, as, as far as some of the other moral shortcomings of President Trump that existed beforehand, saying that he was going to 
grab women by the you-know-where and, and all this other stuff, or that, uh, what was another Trump quote, that life isn't worth living unless you have a hot piece of you-know-what uh, on your arm or whatever. Trump really hasn't done that since he became president, which is to his credit. Now, we might find out years later that he actually has been doing that behind the scenes or something like that, kind of like we did with JFK, but based on the information that I have, and I have to go off of the information that I have, I've yet to see any major moral shortcoming from President Trump on this. I, I'm not saying that he's by any means perfect or that he should be a role model for little kids, but as far as like the, the big moral bugaboos that Christians like myself had with President Trump beforehand that called his, his character into question, which was, I think, a 100% valid excuse. I, I mean, I was the one that was making those arguments back then. He really has behaved himself pretty well since he's been in office. And so th there's no major debacle, debacle, several little minor things that I would take issue with and, and did take issue with, but nothing huge. When it comes to policy, he's been, I mean, just absolutely excellent on things like lowering taxes. He lowered the corporate tax significantly. He lowered the regular income tax across the board. He's talked about getting rid of payroll taxes, even though he can't unilaterally did do that. He has advocated for that policy and trying to get rid of the payroll tax. He has been really good on deregulating. I mean, we have cut so much red tape and it has made the economy just explode. You've seen in the past two or three years before the virus hit what the Obama economy could have been if Obama hadn't spent the vast majority of his presidency hiring bureaucrats to write mountains and mountains of red tape. We could have had all this economic prosperity years ago. More American innovation, more wealth for everybody, but President Obama would not get out of his own way and constantly tried to torpedo the American economy, President Trump has done the exact opposite. He's turned it over, trusted the American people, trusted the American business owner, and said, yeah, you guys build what you want. We'll, we'll try to scale back and stay out of your way as much as humanly possible. And he's done that, and it has yielded incredible results. I mean, you look at the economic numbers from low unemployment, high labor participation rates, insanely high GDP. Our, our growth rates have been astronomical. Really, up until the coronavirus hit, we had had an economy that we have not seen in the course of a century. And some numbers that were breaking records all time. And so he's been fantastic on that, and so there's nothing to complain about there when it comes to abortion rights. He has been the most pro-life president of my lifetime. And... I didn't live through the Reagan years. I was born during the H.W. Bush administration. And so I do have limited scope in that. But from a policy perspective, you could even make the argument he, he is as or even more pro-life than President Reagan was. And I get that that's a very bold statement, but if you're looking at it and looking at what he's actually done, policies he's actually implemented, and you, you also consider that at least... Uh, from an executive standpoint, doing what he can. He has advocated for very pro-life policies. Not all of them went through and made it through the House and the Senate, but he's been openly advocating for them and asking the Senate and the House to act upon them. Granted, I'm shocked by that. He was a lifelong Democrat his entire life. He was pro-abortion 
really abortion on demand for the vast majority of his life. And I did not believe his story. I mean, it's not that I disbelieved it. It was more like I didn't buy into it really was a life-changing event for him. His story of how he became pro-life. But, I mean, from every measurable standard, he has been as pro-life as any politician in Washington. And that is something that is to his credit. I Believe me, I'm flabbergasted by it, but he actually did do that. Uh, frankly... All that to say, I was dead wrong about Trump on most of his policies. I was right on trade, and his his ridiculous tariff war has been a disaster. And based on every rubric that I have seen, it hasn't yielded good results. However, it hasn't been a large enough problem to cancel out his overall economy. Frankly, I'm convinced that if he got rid of the tariffs the economy would be even better than it already is. And we're already seeing a very quick recovery. Now, I said from the very beginning when, we, when it came to the coronavirus economic recovery, the president and the vice president were saying it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. In other words, it's going to dip down and then it's going to pick right back up and be about where it was. I never bought into that. I said it's going to be more of a check mark. And the truth is, I wound up being more or less correct on that, because if you're looking at the economic numbers, like unemployment, labor participation, that kind of thing, so what it's doing is it's taking a pretty substantial dip, and then it's coming back not exactly at the same rate. There is a little more of an angle, so if your original dip is a, you know, a, a, a 100 to 110 degree dip, the recovery is like at 80 or sorry, that, that'd be actually about the same angle. Uh, it, it's about a 65 to a 70 degree angle. So not as good as we would like, but the recovery is happening a lot faster than I predicted it would be. And so I was wrong about Trump on that as well. So there are a lot of things that President Trump has just proven me wrong on. And I have no problem admitting that. Frankly, I'm very pleased. He's done something that no other president in modern history has done which is he governed more conservatively than he ran. And this is the reason that I didn't believe he was going to be a very conservative president. Every single candidate, every single candidate that I've studied, the ones that I've been alive for, the ones that I studied throughout history, Republicans, Democrats, they always govern slightly to the left or in some cases severely to the left of where they campaign. But they never stay where they are or go right. Even President Reagan, whom I love, a personal hero of mine, he governed somewhat to the left of where he campaigned. His campaign was uber-right, and his actual governance was not center-right, but, you know, about halfway, I guess, would be the best way to say that, because he did dramatically cut regulation and taxation. He did not cut spending. And he didn't really roll back the regulation. Or he, well, he did roll back the regulation state. He didn't really roll back the size and scope of the federal government. And so, as much as I love President Reagan, that's something that Trump has to a certain degree done. Now, he hasn't rolled back on spending. He's still spending way too much money. And, and there's a number of different issues that we could come into. But my point in all of that is, President Trump campaigned as kind of a center-right moderate. And he wound up governing pretty darn conservatively, about as conservatively as President Reagan did, which was astounding to me. No president has ever done that. And so it was really, really bizarre, but I'm, I'm very pleased that I was actually incorrect on that. Foreign policy also turned out 
far better than I expected. A peace deal in the Middle East. I was skeptical of President Trump's approach on that. And I, I don't think that every single call that he has made in foreign policy has been correct. But overall, I mean, you've got a historic peace deal in the Middle East that nobody, including myself, thought was even possible. And you've got lots of dead terrorists and no new wars. And ISIS is basically not a threat anymore. I won't go all the way and say that they're completely not a threat, but they have been so neutered by President Trump and what he's done to them that they really haven't surfaced except for in a handful of like ragtag attacks in the Middle East. And that is a very good thing. Keep in mind, at one point, they controlled land larger than the state of New Jersey and were printing their own money. They'd basically become a caliphate country. And now, partly because of some of the things done at the end of the Obama administration, but mostly and primarily because of things that President Donald Trump has done, ISIS really isn't much of a threat anymore. But ultimately, what it comes down to, and this is always the big one for me, constitutionalism, because the primary job of the president has always been to defend the Constitution and act in accordance to it. So how does President Trump grade on this one? Well, he did walk back most of the Obama-era policies that violated the Constitution that completely... I mean, almost completely eliminated the separation of powers when it came to the legislature. You, you had basically the, the Supreme Court acting as a super legislature, which they kind of already do, and there's not much a president can do about that. But you also had this thing to where the, the Congress and the president and the roles therein were almost blurred to the point to where they were non-existent because President Obama was just basically saying, well, I don't really care what laws Congress passes. I am going to, through executive order, do what I want. And unfortunately, there were very few people that were willing to act as a check on him when it came to that. And so President Trump did walk back a lot of those policies, and he is not rhetorically constitutional. He doesn't speak the language of somebody that actually knows and respects the Constitution. I think that that's fair. You're not going to get a, a Thomas Solian, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Scalia-like explanation of how freedom of speech is important to us. That's not who Trump is. He's not going to do that. But if you look at how he is actually governed, he's governed far more constitutionally than even his speaking would lead you to believe. For example, he constantly talks about just going after the press and opening up libel laws. I have no idea how he even intends to do that, but he says that he would open up libel laws and use that to go against the press. But the thing is, he's not done any of that. So if you compare what he has said to what he has actually done, he's actually governed in a very constitutional way. He'll take pot shots at the media, he'll take pot shots at things like free speech, but when you look at his actual governance, he's really done nothing to try to curtail that. In fact, he's been far more transparent than the previous administration. And so, yeah, he occasionally says things that get on my nerves and frustrate me because it's blatantly unconstitutional, but it never manifests itself in an actual policy. And if I had to pick one or the other, if I had to pick between a President Barack Obama who gives lip service to the Constitution, but then seeks at every opportunity to go around it, versus a President Trump who doesn't pay lip service to the Constitution at all, in fact, oftentimes kind of accidentally winds up disparaging it, but then winds up governing more according to it, I, I would pick that option. 
Now, I'd rather just have somebody that's a dyed-in-the-wool constitutionalist and says it and also does it, but that person is not on the ballot this time. And so President Trump is arguably very, arguably very constitutional in that sense that if you look at what he does versus what he says, he actually does a lot of constitutional things. So let me really quickly address the reasons I was against him in 2016. First of all, populists tend to sway in the wind with every new thing that comes up in the public. President Trump, to his credit, has largely avoided doing that. Now, I think it may be because he is a populist within his own base. In other words, he does what is popular with the people that already support him as opposed to doing what is popular amongst just the general population. But either way, he has not done that. He sways back and forth rhetorically some, again, with the whole what he says versus what he does. And I think a lot of that has to do with President Trump kind of throws things out there, see, throws things at the wall, sees what sticks, and then reacts to that. But either way, my primary issue with him being a populist is that whatever public opinion was, he would just kind of sway along with that. But he really hasn't done that. He's actually stuck to his guns, which is surprising, quite frankly. And then, as much as morals are important to me, I already essentially gave an explanation of why morals are still important to me, but the morals that he has shown since 2016 haven't really been something that would be a deal-breaker or particularly bothersome. And so if I'm going to abide by my own rule of giving him a clean slate on that, even in the realm of morality, he's not really done anything there since that happened. Uh, since the 2016 election. And one of the main reasons that I opposed him is that, frankly, all available information pointed to him being a liberal. He had been a Democrat and a Republican and an Independent and a Democrat again and a Republican again, but he had been a Democrat most of his life. And most of the policies that he espoused were very Democrat-esque on things like abortion, on things like guns. And so, all available information in 2016 pointed to him being very liberal. That's not the case now. The man has a solid record that we can look at, and it's pretty darn conservative. And so because of that, my three big issues that I just went over, him being a populist, morality being very important to me, and the fact that all information pointed to him being a liberal, all of those reasons are gone now. And so I still have some reservations about it. I'm still very much, you know, sort of dipping my toe in the water on this when I, I'm not rushing into it because there's still some, some pretty severe skepticisms that I have of President Trump. But he's at least 80% of what I want at this point, and that's good enough to get my vote. Which, by the way... There were so many people in 2016 that were really upset with me for not supporting President Trump and not voting for him, saying, well, you just want somebody that's perfect. No, I don't want somebody that's perfect. My standard is just higher than your standard. My standard is not perfect, but my standard is more than what your standard is when it comes to conservatism, constitutionalism, that kind of thing. So don't make the mistake of accusing anybody that has a higher standard of you of, well, all you want is perfection. In the same way that you should not assume that everybody with standards lower than you say, oh, well, you just don't care about it. It's just not important to you. Well, no, not necessarily. It may be important to, to them. Their standard just happens to be lower than yours. And so 
I know that it's more difficult and more complicated, but when you're having these conversations, it is more productive to understand where the person's standard is as opposed to just accusing them of having no standards at all or having standards that are too high and unreasonable. And then maybe debate about where that standard should be, where that bar should be. But I'm just telling you, based on the last four years that we have had of President Trump, I went into this very skeptical and expecting that I would not be voting for Trump in 2020. I had no problem with, and, and I have no scruples whatsoever, for voting for a third-party candidate if I don't like one of the top two in the primary party's tickets. But this time, I'm about 80% of the way there with President Trump, and as President Ronald Reagan once famously said, you being 80% in agreement with me doesn't make you 20% my enemy. And so, yeah, I, I think I'm actually going to wind up voting for Trump here. Like I said, I don't tell you how to vote, but that's how I'm going to be voting come tomorrow. So, and I think probably the most impressive thing is something that happened really recently, that even when liberals were begging him to seize power and take it away from the states when it came to doing mandatory mask mandates, mandatory shutdowns, that kind of thing, Trump could have seized power there and said, no, we're going to leave it to the states. He had his political opponents begging him to take more power. And he said, no. I think the man deserves a round of applause for that. Because especially somebody like him who has a more authoritarian background, that to me was a pretty, a pretty good telltale sign that this was not going to be a guy that was just power hungry and going to make himself into a a proto-legislature that just mandates down whatever he wants. He understands there is a separation of powers. He understands that there is a separation of the federal government and the state government. And the federal government doesn't have the right to just do whatever it wants and mandate that the states fall in line. That, to me, was a big indicator and, and might actually be the primary reason that I look at that and go, okay, I can see myself voting for this guy. Because my biggest fear was that he was going to, if he had an excuse to take power, just railroad the states, railroad everybody else, and accumulate power in the executive. And the reason that that was so dangerous is, if the next president was a Democrat, you think they're going give to up, give up that power? Heck no. This is what happens with Republicans all the time. Republicans seize power, accumulate it in the executive, and then the Democrats show up and take over the executive branch. They win a presidential election and go, well, the last guy did it, so now it's my turn. I'm not saying Republicans are the only ones that do that, but it happens quite a bit. And that's why precedent is so incredibly important, not just in the courts, but also in the legislature and the executive. Because that stuff does matter. And to President Trump's credit, he's done the opposite. So I will wind up pulling the lever for him tomorrow. Our second big race, Tommy Tuberville. Now, I'll say this about Tubbs. Regardless of what he does in the political realm, he will always have my love for beating Alabama six times in a row. I went through all of middle school and high school not knowing what it was like to lose an Iron Bowl. So, again, that's, that's completely separate from my political opinion of him, because I've been super critical of him in politics. But as far as a person, I will always love him for that. He will always be, so, he will find someone amicable in me 
because of that. Now, when it comes to Tommy Tuberville, the politician running for Senate here, look, based on everything I can see and, and basically all of my criticism of Tuberville boiled down to one thing. He is nothing but a lapdog of Trump. And I just gave you an explanation of how there are a lot of really good things to like about President Trump. But I don't like people that are yes-men. I don't like people that are lapdogs that are just going to run as a clone of somebody else. Because if that person turns bad, then all the clones turn bad. And that's not a good place to be either. And that could still theoretically happen with President Trump. But Tuberville's answer to every policy question has basically been, well, I like Trump and I'll do what he says. I mean, he's basically a brainless puppet. And I hate to say that about Tuberville because I do genuinely think he's a good man. I actually know people that have worshipped with him, that have been to church with him. We talked about that in the, the, the last episode where we did that article about the religion of the two candidates. I think he's a good guy. I really do. And I have no personal scruples with Tommy Tuberville, but that was the main reason why I thought he was a horrible candidate and should not have won the GOP primary. I mean, he wasn't even my second choice. He was like fourth or fifth because of that. I don't like lap dogs. I don't like yes men. But this has essentially become a race of two lapdogs. You can either have President Trump's lapdog or Chuck Schumer's lapdog. Now, you could do a write-in, and again, I'm okay with doing a write-in. But if I'm looking at a race where one is a clone of President Trump, a guy who, like I said, I, I about 80-85% agree with, then I'm okay with voting for that guy because as much as I don't like the fact that he's a clone... He's a clone that'll probably do more or less what I want to. So, for example, in Super Smash Brothers, I didn't really like Ganondorf because I wasn't a good Captain Falcon player. I was a pretty good Pikachu player, so Pichu wasn't my first choice, but I could play as Pichu. And so this is kind of the same thing. I get that that's a goofy analogy that doesn't really apply here, but you know what I'm saying. If he's going to be a Trump clone... I don't like the fact that he's a Trump clone. I would rather have a senator that can, you know, actually think for himself. But since that doesn't seem to be something we're going to have anytime soon, I could see myself voting for Tommy Tuberville. And like I said, I, I do think from a moral perspective, he at the very least is a good guy. So it would be kind of weird for me to list off all the reasons that I think it's okay to vote for Trump and then vote against a guy for being exactly like Trump. I don't want him to be exactly like Trump. I want there to be separate branches. That's why we have separate branches of government and for the Senate to act as a check on the president and vice versa. But if we're going to have somebody that is going to be a clone, Trump's not a bad person to have a clone of. And because of that, I'm going to be voting for Tommy Tuberville for the Senate. And one last thing, because I've already made my mind up on that one, and I don't want to do an explanation of why I'm voting for X, and the explanation be because other guy running against him is so bad. This is not a reason to vote for Senator Jones, or sorry, Senator, or sorry, uh, vote for Tommy Tuberville for Senator against Senator Jones. But I do find it hilarious that I have seen over and over again in my various social media feeds and also through various other publications. AL.com in, in particular did one, uh, Republicans for Senator Jones, which is not an unfair article to write, but all their rationale was incredibly stupid. And what I find really funny is they kept talking about Doug Jones as though, well, he's just a moderate, and if you just listen to him, you'd realize that 
he's not that different than the values of Alabama. Oh, really? Really? Well, let's go ahead and look at not what he says, because he does say a lot of things that sound very bipartisan. Let's look at the man's actual voting record. So you can see here, this is FreedomWorks Freedom Score on several different senators. These are all senators that are further to the right than Doug Jones. Doug Jones is to the left of Kristen Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Cory Booker. So no, I don't buy into this ridiculous notion that Doug Jones is, he's really just a moderate blue dog Democrat and he just stands for a common sense. Don't give me that BS. Don't give it to me. I know better. I can look at the man's voting record and see that he votes to the left of some of the farthest left senators in the United States Senate. So you just saw there that his score was a 12. Bernie Sanders is an 11. This guy is voting on par, just barely more conservative than an actual socialist. So don't feed me a line about Doug Jones being some kind of moderate. He's not. I, again, I, I'm not using that as an argument to vote against Doug Jones, even though it is actually a pretty strong one. I'm just saying that I can't stand the media in the 11th hour trying to shoot, uh, trying to carry the water for Doug Jones and say, no, you don't understand. He really is a moderate. He really is, you know, right down the middle and willing to work across the aisle. Yeah, well, he's not walking, working across the aisle 88% of the time. So I'm going to go with a no on that one. It's absolutely absurd the way that they're trying to carry the water for this guy and trying to push him across the finish line, even though he's double digits behind Tommy Tuberville at this point. So the, pretty much the entire rest of the ballot is uncontested. I know it's hard to see here because it's a little bitty, but if you were to look down this ballot, virtually everything else is uncontested. The one thing that kind of sticks out is the president for the Public Service Commission which is Laura Casey, the Democrat, versus Twinkle Anders Kavanaugh, the Republican. I don't really like Twinkle Anders Kavanaugh, so I'm probably going to abstain or write in Robin Lidecker on that one. She was one of the candidates that ran against her. I just don't think, I don't think Kavanaugh's done a very good job. She's not really done what the president of the Public Service Commission is supposed to do, which is inform the public on what our utilities are doing. So that one's kind of a non-starter, for me, at least in that one particular area. So I've got nothing on that. Stephanie Bell and Lisa Keith for the State uh, Board of Education, both are fantastic. I know both of them personally. Uh, there are certain policy disagreements that I have with both of them. I, I could name them off right now, but suffice it to say that when it comes to the 80% rule, th they're probably more of a 90. I have some personal scruples with, with them occasionally, but it's not anything that would cause me to think, mm, should I vote for them or not? No, it's, it's really pretty much automatic at this point. Having a handful of disagreements is not enough to cost you my vote, and I think that both of them are doing a good job, so there's no reason not to vote for both of them for the State Board of Education. Now we come to the amendments, and we do have several this time, and a couple of them that are actually fairly complicated. The first one is not among them. Because Amendment 1 is just that only citizens can vote. There's a longer explanation, but that's the long and short of it, that you have to be a United States citizen to vote in the state of Alabama. So, uh, yeah. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, 
Caleb, isn't that already the law in Alabama? Yes, it is. All this does is it codifies it as a part of our Constitution. So, yes, it's a law, but this just makes that law even harder to undo. And that's important because, yes, Alabama is ruby red right now. But I'm looking at Georgia and North Carolina and seeing how slowly, over time, they started going more blue. They started getting more liberal policies in place. And remember that not that long ago, Alabama had been controlled by Democrats in the legislature for over 100 years. The Republican Party is actually relatively new in the state of Alabama, at least the dominance of them is. And so because of that, it is important to strengthen the good laws that we have in place to make sure that they are even harder to overturn when somebody else is in power. And so, yeah, technically this doesn't change anything functionally, but it would make the law more difficult to override and it just sort of clarifies, look, you got to be a U.S. citizen to vote in the state of Alabama. That's just the way that it works. So I'm recommending a yes vote on that one. Again, I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you how I'm going to vote and that, that's how I would vote. Uh, when it comes to Amendment 2, this one's pretty complicated, and so I'm going to give you a, as brief an explanation as I can. It revolves around several different structural changes in the court system. For example, it no longer requires district courts to hold court in cities of less than 1,000. I could kind of get on board with that. That's, that's basically just a procedural thing, and if you want to have court in your larger district courtroom as opposed to going to some very tiny podunk town to hold court in that town. I get that. I especially understand it, for example, from the state of being from Marbury. I mean, Marbury doesn't even really have a place to do that. And so removing the requirement that the court must take place inside that little bitty town, I could get behind that. The whole Supreme Court now will be selecting the administrative director of courts instead of the chief justice. So for those of you who don't know who the administrative director of courts is, they're kind of like the VP. Not exactly, because their job isn't exactly the same as the Chief Justice of the state of Alabama, but they're kind of the enforcement of that, and they assist the chief in helping him distribute that. So you may recall, for example, one of the reasons that Roy Moore was cast out of office the last time, not the first time, <laughs> the last time is because he was issuing an executive order or recommendation. I say it's an executive order. That's technically not what it's called, but it's essentially the same thing for the courts, directing them to that they did not have to sign gay marriage licenses, for example. That that was not a requirement of them, that they didn't have to do that. And so the administrative director of courts is the person that helps put that stuff together and helps distribute it, that kind of thing. I think this is a bad idea. And the reason that I do is the chief justice needs to work together very closely with this person. And so it makes sense that he's the only person that is going to be deciding who that is going to be. This is more of a procedural job, more so than one that actually has power in and of themselves. And so this would be kind of like having the president not allowed to select his own vice president or not allowed to select his own chief of staff. It just doesn't make any sense. The administrative director of courts does have some power, but pretty much all of their power is derived from the chief justice anyway. And so it just makes sense to me to let the chief justice do that when he's got to be able to pick somebody that he trusts, 
that he's going to work with very, very closely. And because of that, it just kind of makes sense to let whoever won the election to be Chief Justice of the state of Alabama to also be the one that selects the Administrative Director of Courts. And so this, to me, is a really bad addition to an otherwise pretty good bill. It expands the Judiciary Inquiry com Committee from 9 to 11. Why? That's really my only question on this one. Okay, it's got 11 people instead of 9. Is there a reason? Is that number just arbitrary? Now, you could also make the argument maybe that 9 is arbitrary too, and that's not an unfair point to make, but my point is, well, if one's arbitrary and others, the other one's arbitrary, what is expanding it to 11 do? So this is not one that I'm necessarily like, very opposed to or anything. I just don't understand the change. Maybe someone could explain it to me in a way that I could be compelled to agree, but right now that's just not there. It prevents a judge from being automatically disqualified from holding office simply because a complaint was filed with the Judiciary Inquiry Commission. This one I actually think is pretty good. I do agree with this one, and primarily the reason that I do agree with this one is because it, it essentially conveys the innocent until proven guilty idea to a justice. So, in other words, just because a inquiry is filed to this committee, in, in criminal terms, that would be the charge, that you're not basically punished for being charged. Because you can see how, from a procedural standpoint, this would be something that you could, you could sort of strategically allege something that isn't true, and then cause that judge to not be able to serve the way that he's supposed to be able to, and you could kind of make a vote go the way that you wanted to if that's the case. I don't know of any cases of that actually happening, but my point is it's theoretically possible, and it does basically punish somebody for being accused of something rather than punish them only if it is proven that they actually did something incorrect. And so I actually really agree with this. I think that it's a good idea, and I commend whoever added that into this bill. And then the final part of this is it provides that a judge can be removed from office only by the court of the judiciary, which again kind of goes along with that whole innocent until proven guilty thing. So both of these measures are actually really good. Looking at it on the whole, though, I'd have to say no. I would vote no on Amendment 2. I will vote no on Amendment 2 come tomorrow. And the reason is because I don't like the fact that the entirety of the Supreme Court will be selecting the administrative director of courts. I either like or am just neutral toward everything else in the amendment. Why didn't they separate this into other amendments? Because if we were voting on this measure by measure, I'm looking at it right now and I see three that I would vote in favor of. So about half the bill I'm in favor of. But as Calvin Coolidge once said, it is far more important to stop good bills from or to stop bad bills from getting through than it is to pass good ones. And so because of that, this is a bad amendment. And I'm not willing to take the poison pill of the things that I don't like to get the things that I do. Maybe the legislator will drop back and punt on this one and propose another amendment that is separated out, that they've divided the question on this one. But ultimately, I'm going to vote no on this one. I think that there's just a couple things in there that I don't like or either I don't understand why they're trying to do it. And so because of that, I'm just going to hands off on this one, say no, and hope that they come up with a better version of some of the things that I do like later on. The Third Amendment. Basically what this one says 
is if appointed if an appointed judge has served two years, he is automatically subject to special election. I think that's good. So, since a lot of judges' terms in the state of Alabama are six years, if something happens, a judge dies or can't function or perform his duties, then a judge can be appointed to replace him. Nothing wrong with that. Makes sense. The problem with that is, you could theoretically have a judge that, let's say, God forbid, he is elected and three months into the job, he dies. And then somebody else appoints that judge. Okay, so that means an unelected judge can now serve up to six years until his term expires. He could serve basically the entire person's term and never have to come up with an election. This says, we understand the need for this. We're even willing to give you two full years. But if you haven't figured out something in two years, you got to have a special election. It's illegal for you to stay in office that long if you've just been appointed to replace somebody else. And this is smart because let's say that that same person dies and there's only 18 months left in his term. Well, it's not really fair to have a special election and then in less than, you know, eight months after he just won an election, he's got to run again to keep the seat that he just won. And so two years is a pretty good time frame for that. I think two years is reasonable and it protects the rights of the people in the state of Alabama. And so this one, very basic, very simple, but I'm going to go ahead and vote yes on this one. And that's impressive because we're now up to two yes votes on the amendments and I almost always vote no on just about all of them. But I think Amendment 1 and Amendment 3, both of them are good. Amendment 4, this would allow the state legislature to recompile the Constitution. I'm going to vote no and heck no. And the reason for that is the way that the system is set up now. The 1901 Alabama Constitution has tons of flaws. It's way too long. It's incredibly complicated. There's a whole lot of outdated language in it. I understand that. But there's a right way and a wrong way to correct it. This is the wrong way. If we're going to come up with a new convention, we need to come up with a constitutional convention. It doesn't need to just be the legislature. I get that that would be easier. I get that that would be simpler. But here's the thing. If we want a constitution that's going to last, we have to get this right this time. This is kind of a half-butt measure to kind of throw another band-aid on it. That's dumb. We need to full-on do this and do it right so it will last, or we need to not do it at all and continue as it is. These half-measures aren't helping anyone. So I'm actually a really big advocate of rethinking and, and reshaping our Constitution and coming up with a new Constitution of the state of Alabama if that's what it takes. I'm 100% on board with that. But you cannot look at me and tell me that these half measures are a good thing because all this does is kick the can down the bucket a little bit further and it gives us worse government in the meantime while that is taking place. And so I have no animosity towards the legislature, but this is not the right way to do it. If we're going to do this thing, let's do it right so we don't have to do it again in 10 years or 20 years down the road. Let's get it right now and be done with it. That's the reason I'm voting no on Amendment 4. Now, Amendments 5 and 6. These are essentially exactly the same law for two different counties. 
I don't understand why Alabama has constitutional amendments that only deal with local laws inside a specific county, but that's the way our Constitution works. This is another example of why I think the 1901 Constitution does need to be completely reworked. But basically, it's a stand-your-ground law for churches. So you know how the stand-your-ground law works. Basically, you do not have a, uh, a duty to flee if you're not being attacked, or you can actually stand your ground and defend yourself if you happen to be in a church building. So basically, they treat a church building like the castle doctrine. So just like if you were in your car or you were in your place of residence, your house, your apartment, whatever, you don't have. You can stand your ground. You can defend your home. You can defend your property. You can do that with a stand your ground law. This applies that same concept to a church. So if some crazed lunatic comes in and starts attacking your church, you can stand your ground. You can actually open fire on them and, and fire. Now, if you're under fire at the time, you can do that no matter where you are, regardless. But this allows you to actually defend your church building as if it were a home. And I think that that's a good thing. However, I'm going to be abstaining on both of these amendments. Not because I don't think it's a good law, because I actually do agree with it and think it is a good law. The reason I'm abstaining is because I've long ha had a, held a policy that I do not get involved in local matters of a place that I don't live. I'll talk about them. I'll give my comments on them. I'll tell you whether or not I think they're a good idea or not. But I'm not going to vote for it because that's not where I live. I believe in local control. I don't believe that the state should be mandating these things. And frankly, I don't think it makes any sense for a guy that lives in Elmore County like me to have a say in what's going on in these two counties in Franklin and Lauderdale. I got friends in Franklin County. And to them, I would recommend they absolutely vote yes on this. In fact, I know friends and have gone to church in Franklin County. So this is a law that hits a little closer home to me than, than many might. So to them, yeah, absolutely vote yes on it. I'm abstaining. I'm not going to vote one way or the other. Because I don't believe that that's something that I should do. And I, if anyone ever asks me about that, I'll, I'll say, that's what I'm doing. That is your call. I'm going to stay away from it. So those are the six ballots. Just a quick review. Amendment 1, only citizens can vote in Alabama elections. Yes. The structural changes to the court system. Again, it's kind of mixed for me. There's several measures I like, several measures I don't. But ultimately, that means I have to vote no on it. Maybe if it were not a big deal, there were just a little bit of, of bad in it, I would be okay, but it's a very mixed bag for me, so I'm going to vote no. Amendment three, the, uh, if a judge is only, served two, is only allowed to serve two years after he is appointed and he's automatically subject to a special election after that, again, I think that's a good idea. I would vote yes on that. And allows uh, the Fourth Amendment allowing state legislatures to recompile the Constitution. That I'm going to say no on. And then five and six, abstain because I don't live there. So that is your ballot preview for the year 2020. But that's not all we got for this episode. In fact, there have been some really interesting developments very recently in the Electoral College and what's going on there. So we're going to be looking at that and give you a preview and update of what the polls look like in those polling places. Will President Trump be the president or will he be unseated by Joe Biden? We will give you, hopefully, what will be an answer, something that will at least clarify and give you an idea of what is on the horizon in just a second when we come back. 
Hey everybody, I'm here again with another cookie review from InsomniaCookies.com. That's InsomniaCookies.com. You can check out any of their physical locations right here in the Yellowhammer State in Tuscaloosa, Mobile, Auburn, or Birmingham. They really need to bring one to Montgomery, but I'm not going to hold that against them. If you are not in one of those cities, you can just order the cookies and it will come in this great box, just like this one, InsomniaCookies.com. And today we're going to be doing one that uh, I'm really excited to review because I love this particular flavor of cookie. This is the white chocolate macadamia nut, so let's go ahead and dig in right now. Oh, very good, very good. You know, the chocolate chips, in this case the white chocolate chips, they're very big and there's there's a lot of them. One thing that always annoys me when you get cookies is typically what happens is whatever the flavor is, whatever the topping that's in the cookie, you don't get a whole lot of it or it's not evenly spaced. And I get that. I mean, I've, I've made cookies before too. I know that you don't have a whole lot of control over where the dough goes, but I don't, I guess it's just because there's such an abundance of it in the cookie dough from Insomnia Cookies that they seem to get spread out pretty well. And I actually like the fact that it look, it seems like the macadamia nuts are actually a little bit smaller. And so you get more of that spread throughout in this particular one. That's a fantastic cookie. And the thing is, I've told y'all about this. I'm going to be honest about my reviews, even though Insomnia Cookies sent me the free cookies and, and they're giving me a sponsorship, obviously. I'm going to be honest about the cookies. And there have been some cookies that, I mean, they're just fantastic. They just might not happen to necessarily be my favorite flavors. Now, some of them have been really good. Some of my favorites have been like the peanut butter cup or the original chocolate chip. I think this one may be my second or third favorite. Probably third favorite because I love the peanut butter cup and I love the mint chocolate. The the chocolate cookie with the, the mint chips in it. That one's really good. This one is a third, maybe if not second. This is one of the best cookies I've ever had. And I think it's probably the best white white chocolate macadamia nut cookie that I've ever had. So be sure to check this out if you love the white chocolate macadamia. This is one of the best versions of it I've ever had. Probably the best. So check them out at insomniacookies.com. That is insomniacookies.com. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. We are going to give you an electoral college preview. And I'm really excited about this because I'm a giant nerd and I live for this stuff. I really like looking at, you know, what, what polls are doing, what the state's going to go. Um, I, there's probably people better at this than I am, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the best that I can do. And especially because I've been keeping a very, very close look on the polls. Now I want to go ahead and give you a preview. This is the electoral college map that I put up, uh, about, let's see, this was what, two weeks ago, I think. So, yeah, so you can see there that Joe Biden wins this one, and it's very, very close, 278. But there are several swing states that we're going to look at, because these are how I marked them two weeks ago. And the swing states that we're going to look at that are within the margin of error that could go either way 
because the other states other than these really, I mean, it's pretty much a done deal. It would be shocking to find out that somebody else picked up one of these states. The swing states right now are Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So those are your toss-up states. And that's how I predicted it two weeks ago, but new information has come out very recently, and I want to go over why I picked the states the way that I did and what I think it's what effect I think it's going to have. So let's look at the first toss-up state, Florida. Now, Florida is interesting because Florida is essentially Trump's second home. I mean, yes, he's a New Yorker. And whenever you think about Donald Trump, you think about New York. That's just part of his personality. He's a real estate mogul in the biggest city in the world, or not the biggest population-wise, but like, it's the economic center of the universe right now. Uh, so because of that, I mean, you think about that when you think about President Trump, but he also has extremely expansive business deals in Florida. He spends a lot of his time in Florida and did even before he became the president. And so because of that, Florida has always kind of been his second home when it came to his primary and the GOP in Florida the last time in 2016. He even beat Marco Rubio, who's from Florida. And so this is a state that Trump does have several important advantages in. His primary disadvantages, though, are that when it comes to Florida, there is at least, this is the way that it shook out in 2016, it wound up being close anyway because there is a pretty substantial minority vote. And there are a lot of snowbirds that move in from the Northeast that happen to vote very liberally. And, and Florida has been trending purple for a long time now. It's been a true swing state for a while. But here are some of the telltale signs. First of all, Governor Ron DeSantis basically ran as a clone of President Trump, kind of the same way we were talking about Tommy Tuberville running as a clone for Trump in the Senate. I mean, he basically did exactly the same thing. His election became a contest of, well, I like Trump more than everybody else. That's why you should vote for me. And to his credit, it was narrow, but he did win. And so that says a lot about how much Trump is favored or at the very least, how much Trump is tolerated in Florida. And this is about as true toss-up as anything is going to get. Your two most recent polls there are Trump plus one and Biden plus one. So, I mean, it is neck and neck. Florida is about as much in contention as any state you're going to get. But here's the thing, and this is going to be a rule that is a recurring theme throughout these states that I'm looking at. Typically speaking, not always, but typically speaking, historically, in these really close states, whoever has the most enthusiasm wins that one. And I'm not talking about the candidate themselves, even though that would be a very easy contest if that were the case. I mean, Joe Biden's barely alive at this point. But if it were an enthusiasm contest, it's an enthusiasm contest between their supporters. There are a handful of really enthusiastic Biden supporters but there ain't many of them. There are a lot of people that really don't like Trump and want to vote for Biden because they don't like Trump. But as far as a lot of enthusiasm, people that are just like chomping at the bit to go out and campaign for Biden, those people are few and far between. And so because of that, in this race, it's pretty clear who has the more enthusiastic base, which means 
that in these really, really close states, I think that it, the smart money is to, if it's a true toss-up, if it really is tied and it's basically neck and neck, you give the edge to Trump. And that's because he just has the more enthusiastic people, and those are the people that are more likely to crawl over glass to vote for the guy. They're the people that are far less likely to just, oh, I forgot that the election was today, and so I forgot to go out and vote. The people that are flying giant Trump flags behind their dually are not going to do that. And so that enthusiasm does translate into votes. Is it enough to swing like a state where Biden is winning by eight points and it's traditionally blue? Probably not. But if it's a true toss-up, that does make a difference. And here is the case in Florida. Very, very tight race. And because of that, I'm calling Florida for President Donald Trump. Georgia. Our neighbors, just like Florida, right here in Alabama, Georgia, I don't really see Georgia going blue just yet because that's been the topic of conversation. Georgia's going blue. I mean, look, Stacey Abrams almost won. Well, she didn't really almost win. I mean, yes, it was closer than a lot of people were expecting it to be, but it was still a pretty conclusive victory by Governor Kemp there. And so, Governor Kemp, again, he didn't run quite as much as a Trump clone as DeSantis did, but he's a pretty pro-Trump guy. And he won his race and did pretty well there, especially in an off year between elections. And so this year where turnout is bigger and states tend to trend more the way that they do traditionally, and Georgia traditionally is a red state, or at least has been for the past couple of decades. And so because of that, I don't see Georgia as going blue yet. Still a concern, still something that we might have to look at on the horizon. I just don't see it happening this election cycle. The most recent polls here are Trump plus two, Trump plus one, Trump plus one, and then Biden plus two. And remember, I'm going most recent to further back. And so the the most recent three are all Trump by at least one, if not two points. And because of that, I, I think that Trump winds up winning Georgia, and I don't even think it winds up being all that close now, it could wind up being close. And the weird thing about Georgia is if one candidate doesn't get more than 50% of the vote, then they have a runoff. Now, I think if a runoff happens, that definitely swings in Trump's favor because it's a special election. It's not happening on election night. And with something like that, generally your more enthusiastic supporters wind up winning it. And so because of that, I think that Trump easily wins Georgia if it goes into a runoff. But I don't really see that even being an issue. I think he probably winds up getting not way over, but slightly over 50% of the vote in Georgia. I, I just don't see it turning blue this year. It might turn blue in the next election cycle or even the one after that, but the polls just indicate that that is not the case this year. North Carolina. So in North Carolina, I don't really think that that's, this is their year to go blue either. I think they're closer to it than Georgia, but I don't think that they wind up going blue this year. It is more liberal than Georgia, but still, there's a lot of rednecks there that really love their guns and love their Bible. And so I know that that's a weird way to put it, but it's North Carolina. Have there been a lot of hipsters move in from other horrible blue states that tax them out of life and limb and they move and then somehow think that, oh, why aren't we getting all this free stuff? We should vote for Democrats here and do exactly the same thing that led them to leave their boneheaded, horribly run blue state in the first place. Yeah, that is happening in North Carolina. I get that. 
It's not going to happen this year based on all the polls that I've seen. may happen soon, but the entire state is not like the big cities in North Carolina. You're, you're just not going to see that just yet. may happen in the near future, and I think it's closer than Georgia, but I think it winds up going for President Trump. The most recent polls there are Trump plus four, a tie, Trump plus one, and Trump plus two. You don't even have really a good recent poll that says Biden wins by a significant margin. So North Carolina, I think, winds up going for Trump. Texas, a state that is kind of trending blue. Remember that Texas has some of the largest cities in the country. Houston, San Antonio, these are huge Democrat strongholds. Now, the state of Texas itself is ginormous, and that's part of the reason that despite having these gigantic major metropolitan areas like Houston, like Dallas, that go really far blue, that Texas has been reliably red for a very long time. But here's the problem. You're starting to see urban sprawl. You're starting to see those giant major metropolitan areas be able to swing the vote because less people are living out in the country and you've got more people moving into the city from states like California, uh, like Oregon, like Washington. You're seeing some of these West Coast states, people from them, leave those horribly run states and move to Texas. And so you are seeing a swing blue. Austin is a, a big example. That's a very, very blue city. So this is a concern. Remember that Ted Cruz nearly lost to Bob Francis O'Rourke in his last Senate election. Ted freaking Cruz, one of the best senators in the Senate, almost lost to Bob Francis, who's a horrible candidate by every considerable measure. So yeah, Texas going blue is a genuine concern. I'm not dismissing that. But again, I don't think it goes blue yet this year. I will say this, though. If Donald Trump loses Texas, he's just lost. Like, there's no way to make up that ground. I don't think that it's going to happen. I think that it's going to come out for Trump, and I think it's actually not going to wind up being all that close. But <laughs> if, if Trump did somehow lose Texas, like, the election's over, you might as well... If that happens, because I'm going to be doing an election live stream tomorrow night, if we're looking at the map and all of a sudden I see that Texas goes blue, I will turn off my stream right then and there. I was like, well, guys, Biden won the election. See you later. I don't even have to, I don't even have to see all the other states. If, we were, if Texas is the first state to report and they report that Biden won, I'm done. So I just don't see that as being a big deal. But the most recent polls from Texas are a tie, Trump plus one, Trump plus four, a tie, and Trump plus five. There's just very little chance that, that Texas is actually going to go for Joe Biden. Arizona. Now, Arizona has been a red state pretty much my entire life. They haven't always been, but my entire life, they've been a pretty reliable red state. But if you know anything about the background with Senator Martha McSally, Martha McSally, who has a fantastic story, and I don't understand why, she is not more liked in her own state. She's got a fantastic backstory, a veteran, I mean, injured in battle, Purple Heart recipient, all of that. And somehow she lost a Senate election there. And then when she did lose, and the other person had to vacate their seat, then she was, uh, Martha McSally was appointed to replace her. So the person that already lost an election wound up replacing them as the senator. I don't know if that was the right call or not, 
But I do know that that left a bad taste in a lot of Arizonans' mouths. And so this is the reason that she's very vulnerable right now. She's already lost the Senate election in the state of Arizona once. It wouldn't be surprising if she did it again, especially since she was not elected to be in the office that she is sitting in right now. And so because of that, she doesn't have the usual advantages of an incumbent. That spells problems in the Senate for the GOP. But you also have to consider that there is a revenge vote factor. And because of that, you could potentially see a whole bunch of Democrat voters come out and vote specifically because they want to get Martha McSally out of office. And those people are also ones that are very likely to vote for Joe Biden. Now, in a state that has been openly in contention for several weeks now, and it's known that Arizona is, it's kind of a question mark as to which way it'll go. I think the revenge vote is less of a factor because that tends to come out later as kind of a surprise after polling, not during polling. And since we've been seeing it during polling, it's less of a, a shock factor there. And there are going to be a whole lot of people that vote for Republicans that are like, okay, we actually have to get our act together and get out and vote this time. So that has less of an impact because of the circumstances surrounding it. But there will be a revenge factor vote, and I don't know if it's going to be enough to turn Arizona blue, but it very well could. However, these are the most recent polls. Trump plus two, Biden, or, sorry, Biden plus two, Trump plus four, Biden plus six, Biden plus four, Trump plus three. Now, looking at that spread, that does favor Biden. But it is a close race. It's close enough that I think you could consider it a toss-up. And because of that, like I said, since it's a toss-up, and most of the enthusiasm is in the Trump camp, I think you got to give this one to Trump. But if he squeezes out Arizona, it is going to be by the skin of his teeth. That's my prediction. Nevada. Nevada is interesting because if, if Trump were to be transformed into a state, like Trump the human being became a state, he would pretty much look like Nevada. It's known for casinos and hookers. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. If you, if you were to translate him into state form, that's what people would think the state would look like. So it's, it's weird that this should be a state that, I don't know, resonates with Trump for some reason, but it doesn't. It didn't vote for him last time, and it probably won't go for him this time. He's just not looking good there. The recent polling there shows Biden plus two, Biden plus two, Biden plus six, Biden plus two, Biden plus six. That's a tall, tall order to overcome a deficit like that in polling. And because of that, I think Trump winds up losing this one. Nevada goes blue again. He didn't win it last time. I don't see any reason to think that he would win it this time. In fact, the polls are even worse for him in this state now. Let's look at Minnesota, the home of Ilhan Omar. So keep that in mind when we're going through these polls. Look, people in the Trump camp are convinced this state is in play. I don't understand why. Now, they have internal polling. And sometimes pollsters do not make their internal campaign polling public. So maybe there's something there that I'm missing. Maybe there are tea leaves that they are reading that I just don't have access to. And because of that, I don't understand why they think it's in play. And it really is. But I have to go based on the available information that I have right in front of me. And the recent polling there is Biden plus five, Biden plus three, and Biden plus five. And what's important is that Biden plus three, 
that is a pollster named uh, Trafalgar, I believe is the way to pronounce their name. And traditionally, just looking at all the polls and looking at different polls in different states, they tend to be very Trump-friendly. Their polls, for whatever reason, through their methodology or whatever, they tend to get a more pro-Trump number than their other polling colleagues. And so the most pro-Trump polling group is still giving a plus three Biden victory? Nah. Minnesota is not in contention, so far as I'm concerned. It's referred to as a toss-up state. This one's going blue. I'm calling it right now. I would be very, very shocked if Minnesota wound up going red based on everything that I've seen. Iowa. Now, Iowa is the epitome of a heartland state. It's right there in the breadbasket. You got a lot of good old-fashioned, conservative, Leonard Skinner loving Americans in Iowa. And you've also got a lot of old-school blue dog Democrats that they just, they're Democrat because they have been for generations, you know, living on the family farm. And uh, my great-great-great-granddaddy was a Democrat, and they don't really know why, they just know that their whole family has been Democrats forever. And so it's interesting because of all those dynamics, and I could go into more explanations on Iowa, but you have a fascinating blend there. And, and Iowa is one of the very few real swing states. I mean, almost every single year. And that's part of the reason we have the Iowa caucus there is because it's interesting and it's a pretty good indicator of how the country as a whole is going to go. But Iowa, they have a very conservative governor in Kim Reynolds they have the, fee, the fifth least restrictive shutdown and the 24th, and are only 24th in deaths per capita. So they got the fifth least restrictive out of all the states in the country. That's how conservative their governor is. And they're about middle of the pack when it comes to death, deaths to capita. And so you're really not going to get a whole lot of people making the argument that the governor is doing a bad job. I just don't see this one going for Biden. I think it's close, but the recent polls are Trump plus two, Trump plus one, Trump plus seven, Trump plus one, and Biden plus four. I, I don't see this one going for Biden. I'm calling Iowa for President Trump. Wisconsin. Can Trump win there again? Because remember, he did shock everybody and win there in 2016. Remember, Wisconsin is the cradle of progressivism. And so just like there is a, a tradition of republicanism, for example, in, the, in certain states, uh, oddly enough, back in the day, California was a big Republican stronghold. But, you know, you'll have a tradition of a particular party in a state. Remember that Wisconsin is the cradle of progressivism. And so it's difficult for any Republican to win. But the recent polls there are Biden plus three, Biden plus eight, Biden plus 10, Biden plus 11, Biden plus one, Biden plus eight. Biden's got this one. I'd love to see Trump, you know, win another one in Wisconsin and just blow everybody's mind. But Trump has, the areas and demographically where he has actually improved, interestingly enough, is he has gotten better with minority voters and he has lost rich, white, conservative suburbanites. And by rich, I just mean anywhere from upper middle class to, to, to very wealthy. And because of that, that's most of Wisconsin. And so the demographics in Wisconsin are against him. He's not going to win a lot of those soccer moms like he did in 2016. 
Not that he was doing great with them anyway, but you know what I'm saying. Like uh, the, the stereotypical white suburban family, Trump has lost a lot of those voters. And because Wisconsin is an incredibly white state, this is one of the reasons that he's just not doing well there. And the Biden campaign also has been adamantly uh, campaigning there because they don't want to repeat the mistake that Hillary Clinton did by basically ignoring, ignoring Wisconsin and acting like it was all wrapped up. Because of that, I think that Biden winds up winning this one, and I don't think it's really even that close. Michigan. Can Trump pull off winning in Michigan again? This one, I think, is a slightly more in contention. So Gretchen Whitmire, arguably the worst governor in the entire country. Her shutdowns have been ridiculous, draconian, and even people that aren't really following the science all that closely can look at some of the boneheaded measures that she put forward and like, that doesn't make any sense. Like when she was having stores wall off their gardening section, were they afraid that coronavirus is growing in the miracle Grow? Like, what's going on here? But anyway, you've had that going on in, in Michigan. I think that that is going to play a role. You're going to have a lot of people that are in Michigan that can't stand the governor that want to go out, and if nothing else, is a giant middle finger to her, would love to see Michigan go red. But I don't know if it's going to be enough. I mean, I get it. Michiganians, however you say that, there's a lot of them that love their guns, they love their lake house, which is another reason why Whitmire's policies went over so terribly. You couldn't even, you literally couldn't drive to another property that you own. So if you're, and this is a very common thing in Michigan, if you have a house in Detroit, but you also have a lake house upstate, it was against the law for you to drive to your own house with your own family even if you weren't bringing anybody else with you. And since that's a very common thing in Michigan, that ticked off an awful lot of Michigan residents. I mean, it's a giant lake state, and so you can see why that would be really, really dumb. So maybe that plays a factor, and maybe it's enough to push Trump over the top. There's a whole lot of people in, in Michigan that are very similar to people in Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi that you know just have that sort of salt-of-the-earth, tie to the land, American freedom kind of mindset. And maybe it's enough to help him win again this year, but based on the recent polling, I'm not sure that that's the case. Right now it's Biden plus two, Biden plus seven, Biden plus 10, Biden plus seven, Trump plus two, Biden plus seven. This one is within reach, but it is a very, very heavy lift. Maybe Trump can pull it out and surprise everybody again. If anybody can do it, it's him. I'm just telling you, this is going to be a tough one. Ohio. Now, Ohio is the state that just about always picks the winner. It's very rare for someone to become president of the United States without winning Ohio. Not because Ohio has that many electoral votes. It's just that that happens to be a pretty good predictor of the way that the race is going to go. This is usually a tripwire, not a deciding vote, so it indicates where the vote is going to go. It's not the, the final vote that winds up winning somebody the election. But right now, it is a true toss-up state. So that means, based on the recent polling, Biden plus one, Biden plus five, Trump plus three, Biden plus one, Biden plus one, Trump plus four. So as you can see, the polls in this state are all over the map. And it could go either way. But since it is this close, and it could go either way, 
again, I think you got to go back to the enthusiasm thing. Ohio goes to the president. And then finally, the last toss-up state, Pennsylvania. I predict, and I could be wrong, but I'm not, I predict that the Pennsylvania winner will be the president of the United States. Maybe I'm not right on that, but I tend to believe that I am. So Pennsylvania, I called this one for Biden two weeks ago. You may recall the graph that I was showing you. This is my map from two weeks ago, what I was predicting would happen. Pennsylvania, as you can see, is blue. It went very, very slightly for Joe Biden. That's what I thought was going to happen. And based on all the recent polling, that was the case. Here are the most recent polls. Trump plus two, Biden plus four, Biden plus four, Biden plus six, Biden plus five. You see how weird it is that you have all these pro-Biden ones and then all of a sudden there's a Trump plus two as the most recent? You see, you can notice that there is a trend here because you've got Biden plus seven, Biden plus five, Biden plus six, and then the closer you get to the election, it starts tightening up. Biden plus four, Biden plus four, and then all the way to Trump plus two. Now, the Trump plus two poll, maybe you could dismiss that as just being an outlier or a fluke. That's not unreasonable. But it's important to note that all of this trending towards Trump happened before you had several nights on end of violent rioting in Philadelphia. And as even Don Lemon and Joe Biden themselves have basically acknowledged, this is affecting the polls. The riots are causing voters to go toward Trump because they believe that he will handle it better than Joe Biden will. Because of that, I think, and this is my most recent map, I think that Pennsylvania has actually swung towards President Trump narrowly. But I think he wins it. And if he does win it, that brings him to 280 and you only need 270 to be the President of the United States. So right now, and this is a big step for me, I am predicting President Trump becomes the President of the United States tomorrow. Again, for the second time. However, for all of you that are still watching, before you start cheering and, you know, yelling and enjoy and jubilation, remember that I suck at predicting elections. <laughs> I, I really do. I, I dig into the numbers. I try to give you as good an understanding of them as humanly possible. I try to consider other things that the polls might not show. But ultimately, I usually come up a little bit short on elections. Last time I predicted Hillary would win, and I wasn't way off. I only predicted three out of 50 states wrong. But it was enough that I predicted the, the winner of that election incorrectly. So I'm hoping that that happens. And remember, I'm trying to be objective about this because two weeks ago, I was saying Biden was going to win it. I try really hard to give you what I think will happen, not what I think ought to happen. But right now, just looking at everything that I've seen, I think Trump wins this one. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics.
Today's Chaplain's Report, we will be continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. For those of you that may not have been around for the last Chaplain's Report, Saul is now plotting against David. So we have moved from Saul being, or sorry, David being part of Saul's inner circle, being basically somebody that's like a member of the family. He's his son's best friend. He's buddies with the all the people in the castle. He's gained some fame and notoriety around the country. He's actually doing missions and going out and fighting people in the name of Saul. And so he's gone from being part of Saul's inner circle to technically still part of Saul's inner circle, but also somebody that Saul has repeatedly tried to kill. And so this is not a good place for David to be. He is in danger because the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the country, is seeking his life. But so far, he has not only had no success, but everything that Saul has done to try to kill David or make him fall out of faith, it's actually only done the opposite. It's only had him gain more favor in the sight of all of the people around him. He has gained more fame. He has become more noble and more people like him, even though Saul was trying to do the exact opposite in sending him out. He was trying to get him killed by sending him out into battle. And we see sort of that same theme continuing on here in 1 Samuel 18, verses 17 through 19. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And who is my family or my father's family, Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time that Merib, Saul's daughter, was to be given to David, that she was given instead to Adriel, the Methshebavite, as a wife. You know, David is just absolutely awed by this. He is shocked and honored that Saul is even considering him as being a member of his family, to, to marry into their family and be the son-in-law. David's just sitting around like, I'm from some backwater hick town out in Bethlehem. My family's not famous. We're not rich. We're not renowned. And in the tribe of Judah, it's true that Judah is a very large and strong tribe, but it also means there's a whole lot of people that just aren't that famous. It's kind of like being a, a, a decent-sized fish, but if you're in the ocean, nobody's going to notice you. But David's family isn't even that. They're a little bitty fish in a really big pond. And so David, who has a very humble upbringing, he spends pretty much all of his time with sheep. He's just flabbergasted by this idea that the king might actually want him to marry into his family. And that's a reasonable reaction to what has just happened here. He's basically being invited to be part of Israel's royalty. That's a big deal for him. But... Understand with that, that Saul doesn't keep his word. I think that Saul knows that doing that would only make David more famous and seem more like he had a legitimate claim to the throne, which isn't really rolling around in David's heads right, right now, but the scripture tells us it's absolutely the all-consuming thing that is in the forefront of Saul's mind. He is horribly worried and paranoid about David taking over his throne. And so the reason that you see this 
event where Saul promises David to, to be his son-in-law and marry his daughter, but then all of a sudden backs out at the last second and has her marry another guy? It's probably because he just, as he says in this verse, he wants the Philistines' hands to be against him. So he wants to basically hold his daughter out there as bait and say, hey, if you, you do what I ask you to, you go out, you kill a bunch of Philistines, you work in my army, I'll give you my wife. And then David goes out and does a bunch of that stuff. And then, oh, uh, yeah, sorry, we, we kind of forgot about that. We just kind of married her off to this other guy. See, that's what's happening here. Saul wants to hold her out as bait, but he doesn't want to actually give her to David because when he does that, he knows that that will just strengthen the seemingly uh, the, the seeming tie to and, and claim to the throne for him. And so Saul is not only deceptive in the sense that he's trying to kill David, but he's also deceptive in his word as well, that he's trying to simultaneously act like, oh yeah, David, and we're such good friends. Also, go out and do a whole bunch of stuff for me that's very risky so you might die. Obviously, that's not what he's revealing here, but he's trying to, to have it both ways. He's trying to make it seem like they're very close, and simultaneously, and from a strategical perspective, it's actually very smart that he's keeping his enemies close like this, or at least someone he perceives as an enemy in this sense. But I think that this should reveal a couple things to us. First of all, Saul is still way too concerned about what people think about him. Because again, he is the king. If he wanted to just kill David, he could. But this is one case where being concerned about what other people think about you is actually leading to a good result. Now, the intent of his heart is the same. His sin is the same. As Jesus reveals to us in the Sermon on the Mount, contemplating and, and scheming of killing somebody in your heart is just as bad as doing it in real life because the evil is still there inside of you. But he's not going to just come out and straight kill David because he is still concerned about what other people think of him. And so because of that, he is trying to take this sort of half-hearted approach. But at least that is that the sort of social responsibility is keeping Saul from acting out his darkest impulses. But it should also reveal to us the evil that is done cleverly is just as evil as evil that is done obviously. Because this is a pretty clever scheme that Saul puts forth. And David essentially does the same thing with Uriah. Years later, when David wants to have Uriah's wife, he strategically sends Uriah out to battle so that he might be killed and then his wife would be available. It's a horrible thing and a terrible time in David's life where he basically becomes Saul for a little while and does a similar thing. They both do it very shrewdly and cleverly, but ultimately, the evil is just as bad if they had done it themselves. In fact, we have David actually understanding this and repenting that he says that it is as if his own sword is the one that pierced Uriah. You see, whether you do it shrewdly and, and do sort of the Rube Goldberg approach where you get the end that you want to, but you do evil to try to get the result that you're wanting, that's just as bad as if you do it yourself, obviously, to where everybody can see. And so... Saul doing this, it's no less evil than what David does and, and actually succeeds at, or, or no less evil than if he had just gone out and killed David himself. 
So let's go ahead and look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 18, verses 20 through 22, the follow-up to this. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they informed Saul, the thing was pleasing to him. For Saul thought, I will give her to him so that she may become a trap for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may become my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in secret, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. So now, Saul has already offered one daughter to David, and then taken that offer back and had her marry somebody else, and then finds out that he has another daughter that fancies David and goes, hmm, maybe I could use her as a trap for him as well. I want you to take a step back and think about this. This is a man that is so consumed with envy and pride and paranoia to try to protect his own throne, his own power, and his own position and prestige. He is willing to use his own daughters as pawns. And by the way, he actually winds up using Jonathan as a pawn as well. This is a man that doesn't mind using his own children, knowing that they will be hurt, in order to get his way. Think about this. He wants to marry off this youngest daughter. I'm sure he didn't really want to marry her off to him, but he's willing to do it is the point. So he takes Machal, and he is willing to have her marry off to a man that he is hoping will die and be killed by Philistines. He is okay with making his own daughter a widow, with having her go through all of the pomp and circumstance and ceremony of being with him and falling in love with him only to hope and then later actually try to facilitate himself because he does do that eventually. He goes to where he's just straight on hunting David and trying to kill him. He is willing to do this wanting to turn his own daughter into a young widow and rip her husband away from her. And he knows that she really loves him because that's the whole reason that this trap will work. He knows that she really does have this affection. He's willing to break his own daughter's heart to get what he wants. Saul's come a long way from where he was earlier in the scripture to where really the only thing that does matter to him is him not even members of his own family, get the respect that they need and deserve from him. He's not even willing to protect his own daughters from something like this. In fact, he's willing to facilitate it. It really is a, a crying shame that somebody that started out as good and noble and, quite frankly, godly as Saul, has fallen so far that now he's not even just ignoring God's commands. He doesn't even respect the wishes and feelings of his own children. It's all something he is willing to throw by the wayside and just have them endure as long as he gets what he wants. Frankly, he's a pretty sick individual. But I think that it should also say something to us about how often enemies don't speak in open animosity, but in flattery 
They try to ingratiate themselves to us. They don't come out and tell us that they're trying to kill us or they wish ill on us or whatever. They, they kind of play this game with us to where they act like they really like us and they act like they're our friends because that'll give them a better opportunity to stab us in the back later. Now, I hope that that's never happened to you. It's very rarely happened to me, and I consider myself fairly blessed that I've been surrounded by great people for the most part. But just keep that in mind, that as much as it's good to love, it's good to trust, it's good to give the benefit of the doubt whenever you can or you have good reason to, that this is an occasion where David is just flattered and, and so awestruck by the idea that he, a humble shepherd, would be favored by the king of Israel not knowing that the reason that that is the case is because Saul's looking for an opportunity to murder him. And I do feel for David and Jonathan and, and Saul's two daughters, Michelle and uh, Merib, you got to feel for them because they're just being used as pawns in this man's game. It's really sad to see. You know, all sin is bad. That's obvious. We, we know that from the scripture over and over again. But intentionally dragging other people and just not caring what your sin does to them, I think that's got to be one of the worst kinds of sin that you can commit. Because a sin that just sort of accidentally hurts other people, that's still bad. It's still wrong. You should still know better. You still shouldn't do it. But one where you're the one intentionally facilitating dragging them into the, and you're just perfectly fine with them getting hurt or just on the other hand, utterly apathetic towards what it does to them. I think that that's a person that you've not only crossed over into the realm of sin, you may be in the realm of psychosis at this point. And I think at that point, you've just gone so far past any place of love and goodness, and we see that that's something that Saul really doesn't have in his life anymore from this point forward. He is so consumed and eaten up with pride and envy and paranoia. There's just nothing else in his life. No joy, no happiness. He can't even enjoy the crown that he continues to wear because he's so paranoid somebody is going to take it away from him. Did God do that to him as punishment? No. God didn't make him do all those things. You see, he did it to himself. When he stopped following God and stopped doing what God would want him to do, that's what Saul's life became. And it's truly tragic, but we can fall into this same problem. If we're not careful, then we too can fall into this, the kind of sin where we don't even care how it affects other people. That's a bad place to be. So if we want to avoid this, we have to do what Saul was unwilling to do. And that is to be obedient and consider how our actions affect others. And to, as the Bible commands, to esteem others better than ourselves. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.